Jim Jackson, my former senior pastor, once told the story of a small band of Christian martyrs. The great witness of these martyrs was the way that they faced their fate. If my recall is correct, on the very march to, the, on their, very march to their execution, allegedly one of the prisoners whispered, Jehovah is the name of our God, and Jehovah saves. One of the prisoners behind him picked up and passed it on to the next one in succession. Jehovah is the name of our God, and Jehovah saves. Pretty soon what was a whisper began as a chant. Jehovah is the name of our God. Jehovah saves. And these martyrs went to the execution with that chorus in their heads. I've chosen to title this sermon, Theology of the Overwhelmed, because I wanted to wrestle in my own life with those places where life becomes so acute that it can seem unbearable to press on. Therapeutic manuals define the experience of emotional overwhelm as a state of being beset by intense emotion that's difficult to manage and that often affects a person's ability to think or act rationally or perform in a functional manner. When I read that, I self-diagnosed as the poster child of emotional overwhelm. <laughs> but we all know the experience of being overwhelmed. It's generally felt when a person has been given too much of something. Whether it's the mounting task of the academic year, the challenges of being a parent, the sheer breadth of trying to keep abreast of the matrix of forces that are shaping our world, life can often feel like the woman who said, I try to take one day at a time, but lately, Several days have attacked me all at the same time. <clears throat> so as I've contemplated my experiences being overwhelmed, I found solace in the words of Psalm 77, and I want to offer it to you for your consideration this morning. I work as an expositor, so if you want to follow along with the psalm, we'll be in uh, page 537 of your pew Bibles, Psalm 77. But first, right, as any good exegete, we have to learn the context, take a brief history lesson, then we turn to interpreting the song, and finally to a brief application. In most translations, the introduction of this psalm tells us that it's a psalm of Asaph, a psalm that was written for the choir director. In other words, even though this psalm becomes very personal, it's not individualistic. It's a song that's written for a community of faith to be used in a congregation of worship. Now that in itself is pretty interesting. How many contemporary worship songs do you know that were written for corporate worship that carry the tone of a lament? And yet Michael Matlock, our resident expert on the psalm, shared with me that there are some 65 psalms of lament and 35 psalms of praise. So what was Asaph up to? Who was he? And what was the occasion that prompted the writing of such a lament? Well, for that, we have to go to the book of Chronicles. Chronicles provides us kind of a mini-history of the Old Testament. And in the climactic chapters, David defeats the Philistines and comes to the realization that God's promises are true that he has been exalted as king over a great nation. And in gratitude, and as a way of signaling to the nation that worship and study of the law would become central to their communal life, David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. With it, he plans a great celebration. Every Israelite will be given a baked loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a raisin cake. There will be a great procession led on poles so that no one suffers the fate of Uzzah. And a great procession will lead to Jerusalem. So significant is this in the life of David that when the day actually comes, David lays aside all decorum, 
strips off his outer garments and dances before the Lord, leaping and making merry. Undoubtedly, this is the most memorable and epic of all the celebrations of the Davidic kingdom. And David, himself a musician who understands the power of music to create the right moment in liturgy, appoints a chief musician, and the musician he appoints is Asaph. If you look in chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles, Asaph's words for the occasion are words that permeate all of the psalms and that we sing in a lot of our worship services today. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing to the Lord. Sing praises to Him. Speak of His wonders. Glory in His name. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Blessed be the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. That's Asaph, chief of the musicians. But then you come to Psalm 77 and there's a much different tone. A psalm of lament. Asaph writes it for the Israelites to give words to their grief, to express their hidden doubts about God's faithfulness and His goodness, so that in the midst of being overwhelmed, they could still be led in worship and in prayer. That in itself may be highly instructive for our ministries. The first response to those in the midst of overwhelming loss or grief or tragedy may be not to offer easy cliches, correctives to the anguish or patronizing prayers, but rather to position yourself in solidarity with the anguish, to sit with the person on the edge of their darkness, and first of all, to offer the space and the words that give utterance to what they feel. Pastoral leaders today are realizing that more and more there's a close connection between effective pastoral leadership and emotional intelligence that one possesses. Why? Because people tend to recruit into their lives spiritual guides who they believe understand their own predicament. Isn't it true that the people that you appoint to be your personal high priest are those who can empathize with your weakness, who are touched by your infirmities, and who are tempted in the ways that you're tempted? Scholars tell us that Psalm 77 was likely crafted in its present form during the exile. Assyria had already sacked the northern kingdom, taken ten tribes into captivity, and the Babylonians now seemed poised to give Judah a thorough thrashing. The prophecies of Jeremiah that once may have been held suspect were now looked on as almost inevitable uncertainties. And the daunting question of Habakkuk now permeated their hearts and minds of the people. Would God really allow a nation that was more wicked to it than Israel to come and to uh, punish Israel as a nation, when it would seem almost unthinkable for a generation to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, Asaph attempts to give them utterance. So this is the work of Psalm 77, what I've called the theology of the overwhelmed. So follow along with me. My voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. Asaph follows the form of personal lament. He begins the psalm with address to God, but there are several observations, I think, that are interesting to note. The opening stanza is full of first-personal pronouns. My voice rises. I will cry aloud. It's my trouble my hand, my soul outstretched to God. This is personal anguish that's brought into worship. 
Asaph recognizes that when we're in a state of being overwhelmed, emotions often dominate our perspective. We become totally preoccupied with ourselves. Our world seems to diminish as the walls begin to press in. But Asaph brings this into worship. When we're in states of emotional overwhelm, God oftentimes seems distant. In fact, it's interesting to note that as Asaph crafts this song, that in the first stanza, it is not a psalm of direct address. God is referred to only in third person. In fact, in verse 3, as God is evoked, it even seems to cause disturbance for Asaph. It's when I remember God, then I feel disturbed. When I sigh, my spirit grows faint. Like us in seasons of wilderness and turmoil, Asaph finds the memory of former days painful. The language is a language of murmuring, characteristic of the tone and the rhetoric of Israel in the wilderness. There is no specificity to Asaph's lament. We don't know for sure what the occasion was that caused him his distress. But it may well be that in writing this for the congregation in the moment in which the Israelites currently lived, Israel was needing deliverance again. And the possibilities for that deliverance, seen simply by the sheer forces of what now surrounded them, seemed like a discredited fantasy. The psalmist wades in the water of his national predicament. He even seems to permit this sorrow to carry a tone of accusation. He says in verse 4, You have kept my eyelids open. I'm so troubled, I cannot speak. In essence, the psalmist says, I can't sleep, and I can't even tell you for sure what I'm feeling. But like a modern-day Kubler-Ross, Asaph guides his people through movements of their bewilderness, bewilderment. He offers space for denial to turn to anger and to bargaining before there's any quick resolution to this distress. But notice the subtle shift that's happening in the direction of his interrogation. In the first stanza of the psalm, God is talked about in third person. But here in verse 4, for the first time, there's petition of direct address. God is assumed to be present to hear Israel and Asaph's protestations. Asaph, you see, permits the congregation to vent their own distress. He gives validation to their angst, and yet veiled perhaps even from their own consciousness, in the process of doing so, they are entrusting their deepest fears and anxieties to God. This is the relinquishment of lament. As Walter Brueggemann says, it is a profound act of faith to entrust your deepest hatreds to God. I like to think that Asaph is moving his readers to a greater sense of emotional literacy. He's giving them liturgical space to become more honest, more raw about the way of their emotional predicament. Liturgy, as he writes, it gives them a way to read and to express their emotional life, to give words to their puzzlement. As Shakespeare writes in Macbeth, give sorrow words, the grief that does not speak, whispers the overwrought heart and bids it break. And so Asaph writes on, penetrating to the very depths of anguish that are oftentimes veiled, I think, in the emotional masking that can be a part of communities of faith. As an intercessor of his nation, as one who writes music on behalf of the people, Asaph cycles all the way down to the fear that drives their insecurity. If the words of the psalm rings true, 
Asaph seems to imply that behind every experience of emotional overwhelm, there lies our most feared anxiety, the vexation that God has abandoned us once and for all. Isn't it true that the real pain of human suffering is not always in the conditions of the suffering itself, but rather in the seeming God-forsakenness of it all, when it's difficult to make any meaning out of the suffering that's occurred? Asaph describes as the experience of unsatisfied prayer, of disappointment, of seeming abandonment by God. And Asaph names it straight on. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious or has he in his anger withdrawn his compassion? Six questions, all darts aimed at the very attributes of God that have characterized the Lord's way with Israel. His faithfulness, his constancy, his covenant, his goodness, his grace. Asaph puts God on the witness stand and subjects him to a fierce cross-examination. Eugene Peterson in the message puts it in contemporary language for us. Will the Lord walk off and leave us for good? Will he never smile again? Is his love worn threadbare? Has his salvation promise burned out? Has God forgotten his manners? Has he angrily stalked off and left us? Just my luck, I said. The high God goes out of business just the moment that I need him. This is pretty unusual liturgy, right? I mean, the pastor and worship leader is supposed to be encouraging trust in the Lord. Why would Asaph offer such diatribe for a service of worship? I remember John Smith, the great Australian missiologist, saying that in his ministry to the poor, he oftentimes used blues music for liturgy because it was the only kind of music that his people could relate to. It may be that if the church is going to regain any credibility in the lives of contemporary people today, it will have to reclaim the songs of lament as part of the journey of faith. There's no easy believism in Asaph's lament, no quick exhortation, no anemic call, anemic call to practice some discipline. In fact, it seems as if Asaph himself may be leaning into his own despair. I've been suggesting that Asaph all along writes this lament on behalf of the nation, wondering if their national failure to be a light to the nations, or might we suggest a city set on a hill. But maybe Asaph is also wondering about his own personal crisis. I wonder if Asaph may have pondered, no, there was a time when I led the worship of Yahweh, when the Spirit of God was so palpable that we danced before the ark, when the words of praise flowed easily and the favor of God's Spirit rested on me. I sang then with a full heart. My heart was strong and I was so confident in God. My walk was so steady that there was no foe that could defeat us. But where am I am now? Did I ever really believe or was I just playing a role and going through the motions? In my own personal exile, have I been an imposter all along? Who am I? What am I supposed to do or be? Have I wandered, or has God repositioned himself toward me? Every leader, I suspect, feels at some point the humiliation of their own inadequacy and questions the worth of pressing forward when it seems the Spirit of God has departed from the work that they endeavored to do that the right hand of the Most High God has changed. The end of verse 9, the psalmist gives this parenthetical selah, 
indicating apparently that the psalmist intends a place for pause and for contemplation. And yet at the end of his pondering, his conclusion is hardly one of consolation. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. What a statement to make for a nation that understood themselves to be the chosen. What a crazy thing for a Levite appointed by King David, chief of musicians, to write for liturgy. Well, aren't you glad that there's more to this psalm? (laughs) One of the most important elements of moving through emotional overwhelm is to gain perspective. Cognitive behavioral therapists aim at arresting a pattern of thinking or behavior in order to change the way a person feels. And this seems to be, thanks IBS, the moment of cruciality in the psalm, the pivot on which the moment of the psalm occurs, Asaph's capacity for remembrance. Finding that there is no currency in the present circumstances where Asaph can purchase any hope, Asaph turns instead to the ancient past. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work, and I will muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the peoples. James may suggest that the psalmist here is thinking the past into the present. Thinking the past into the present. Asaph guides the congregation to see that if they can lay hold of what is known of the reality of God in the past, it could be represented in the now and somehow help his people cope with the awful question that seems to be stalking their lives. What he does is he centers his remembrance on the holiness of God and on the wonderment of his mighty deeds. With your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Now it seems that Asaph's toes are beginning to touch the ground. The psalmist is beginning to find his bearing. His perspective seems to be shifting. Once he found himself drowning in the tsunami of his own predicament, the intersection of his personal crisis coupled with the despair of what he saw engulfing his nation, But now he lays hold of a deeper reality still, that there's one bigger than those tides. In fact, the very waters that were swirling around his soul, the riptides that would suck him under, these are no challenge to the Holy One. In fact, they are the very creation of the Holy One, and they are subject to his command. When the water saw you, Asaph writes on, when the water saw you, O God, they were afraid. The very deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies thundered, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook. How does Aphas lead his people past their present predicament? He reminds them that all that would threaten their very survival is not beyond the the Lord's control. One little word shall fail the enemy. And then Asaph comes to the words that have been the beacon for my soul for the last years of my life. The words that drew me to this text and that I hope become a beacon for you as well. Verse 19. 
Your way was through the sea. Your path through the mighty waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. Your path was through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. Over the course of the last decade, my family has encountered persistent physical and mental health issues. Like the man in the parable that comes begging for bread in the middle of the night, we've persisted in banging on the door of heaven, seeking out doctors and medications, therapy, and good counsel. And we found some relief and some growth towards stabilization. But much of my time in that season was that Jesus would speak the word and calm the mighty waters because whenever I'm overwhelmed, my cry for help is always first that God will change the circumstances of my life. Sometimes I even find myself bargaining with God and promising greater faithfulness. If only take, He'll take away all that distresses. And the assumption that I too often make is that grace is somehow to be found in the alleviation of all of its distresses. How reluctant I am to see that it's often the passage through the mighty waters that stretches the heart to become more cross-shaped and more Christ-like. My wife reminded me that sometimes freedom comes in the alleviation of a crisis, and sometimes freedom comes when God meets you in the midst of that crisis. Your way, through the sea, your path, through the mighty waters. The Psalms were Jesus' hymn book. They patterned and interpreted for him his own life. To read this lament psalm Christologically is to see Jesus' own cries reflected in them. We could only speculate that in a garden called Gethsemane, as Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. And the Father answering in an act of self-donation, No, Son, our way is through the sea. Our path is through the mighty waters of a crucifixion. And then this intriguing fat phrase, your footprints were not known. For Israel, the waters covered back over the passageway through the sea. There was no empirical evidence that Asaph could currently point to and say that God was active in his life. If others were to say to him, geez, Asaph, where is this God that you are so excited about? I'm not sure where Asaph could point. And Asaph seems to know that for the people of Israel to find any confidence They'll have to lay hold by faith what their eyes could, can't currently see. But he also knew that they didn't have to come to that alone. The psalm of lament is a psalm written in and for community. So when you're in a season of life with besetting infirmities that you can't fix and which don't yield immediately and easily to prayer, when there's no proximal evidence that God is moving in the situations that you pray fervently for, when his footprints are not known, then what do you have? You have a worshiping community that grounds their identity in the historical, mighty, saving acts of God. And as you live your lament in the midst of them, you begin to frame your own present puzzlement within the pattern of God's savings acts in history. And isn't this part of our task as ministers of the gospel? It's to stand as ASAP did at the intersection of the times, immersed in our own experiences of personal exile, groaning in solidarity over national failures to be the light to other nations, sometimes finding the evidence of God's footprints difficult to trace both personally and corporately, 
and yet still proclaiming the story that God's hand is yet mighty to save. And living in confidence that the God who brought order out of chaos in creation and brought Israel through the Red Sea and who delivered us through the waters of baptism is trustworthy and will deliver again. What Asaph seems to be offering his people, suggests Walter Brueggemann, is a way for tradition to reconstruct their experience. The realization that the Exodus emancipation pertains to us in the now as it did to every Israelite then. In the end, what Asaph offers his congregation is consolation through communal memory. When the mighty waters overwhelm, communal memory and remembrance may be the only anchor that you have. So, my friends, as the semester presses on, when the assignments build and the day becomes overwhelming, when it seems like you're experiencing death by teaspoonfuls of everyone asking something more from you, when it feels that you're having to do ministry, as Steve Harper once said, from the overflow when you're only half full, when you face chronic issues that don't seem to go away, let the communal memory be your anchor. Call to remembrance His holiness. Meditate on His works of old. And then whisper these words. Jehovah is the name of our God. Jehovah saves. Jehovah is the name of our God. Jehovah saves. Jehovah is the name of our God. Jehovah saves. Stand with me and say it together. Jehovah is the name of our God. Jehovah saves. Jehovah is the name of our God. Jehovah saves. One more time. Jehovah is the name of our God. And Jehovah saves.